Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Let's Fix Work is proudly sponsored by Ultimate Software. Human resources, payroll, talent management, they've got it all. Please visit ultimatesoftware.com to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's show is all about wellness and well-being, and I've got an expert who's a great guest. Her name is Dr. Laura Hamill, and she is the co-founder, chief scientist, and chief people officer of a company called Limeade. This is not a commercial for Limeade. You are not about to listen to someone just go on and on about her company. Dr. Laura Hamill and I have a great conversation about what it means to be a whole, healthy, functioning adult in a non-toxic work environment and the actual work it takes to get there to build a productive environment where people enjoy their jobs, respect one another, and have boundaries and actually can go home and enjoy their lives. If you've ever thought about wellness or well-being and wonder if it's just a fad, I think you're going to love this episode. So sit tight and I'll be right back with more of Dr. Laura Hamill and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. And so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Laura. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Hi, Lori. Thank you. Laura, I know who I am, and I sort of know where I am, but people would love to know who you are and where I am and what I'm doing here. So let's talk about it. You're at the Limeade headquarters and Limeade is an employee experience technology company. I am the chief science officer and the chief people officer here and you're in Bellevue, Washington. (laughs) (laughs) So what is Limeade? What do you do for folks that no one else does in the market? Yeah. So we are very focused on trying to create an integrated and really positive employee experience. The way we do that is we focus on the concepts of well-being, employee engagement, inclusion, and communications. And you do that all in one platform, is that correct? That's exactly right. It's a platform that we offer to our customers to try to create a place where their employees know that the employer cares. You've got a really creative title at the organization, Chief People Officer and Chief Science Officer. We know those aren't two separate skill sets anymore, <laughs> but aren't they? I mean, you're, you're doing it. So yeah. What is that? So my background is in organizational psychology. So that's what my PhD is in. So I get to study people, right? Mm-hmm. And so my whole career before coming to Limeade was focusing on employee research. So I've always focused a lot on employee engagement, organizational culture. And so here at Limeade, I get to do that research still. But then I also work on trying to make sure Limeade is a great place to work. We really feel like there's some integrity in all those things we're telling everybody else to do. We better be doing that stuff ourselves. So that's why I have both of those roles. That is pretty fascinating because I work with a lot of HR tech companies and they're experts in X or they're experts in Y and they don't do it themselves, right? So what's the struggle like? I mean, it must be challenging to have that chief people officer role knowing that you have to drink your own champagne. You have to literally be what you say you are. How do we say drink our own Limeade, right? (laughs) It is hard. It's also hard in a growth company, right? Where you're trying to, you're moving fast, you're hiring a lot of people, but we are 
so committed to this. I've, I've been very proud that since the beginning, since I helped start the company 13 years ago, since the beginning, we knew that we needed to do that, right? So it's not something we're just trying to do right now. That said, it still is hard work, right? Because yeah. it is like a microphone for anything that doesn't kind of feel with creating a place that's a great place to work. You know, anything that doesn't feel like that, our employees let us know. And we want them to, for sure. It is hard, but it also is very satisfying, right? When you see the stuff come to life. And it's also great. Our employees can talk about it. Like at Limey, this is how we do it, or this is how I experience it. So when it goes well, it can really be powerful. I bet. You're not just a chief science officer. You're not just a chief people officer. You're also a co-founder, but you started out in the world of research and yeah. psychology, right? So how did, and by the way, North Carolinian, right? So yes. I'm super excited to have you on the show today. <laughs> Thank you. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey, because I would imagine when you started out in the world of psychology and research, being a tech founder probably wasn't on your immediate radar. Not even close. Well, no, it was just really interesting the way it all happened. So I worked kind of one of the biggest jobs that I had was working at a large technology company and I was in charge of the employee research group. So I got to do really cool things pretty early in my career, big employee engagement survey, culture work, leadership competencies, that kind of stuff, right? So I had a really good exposure. And even in that job, I had 10 organizational psychologists reporting to me. It was pretty amazing. It was a big job. It was awesome. I actually, though, got to the point where I was kind of over it, honestly. I got to the point where I just didn't want to go to work every day. Hmm. There were some, you know, things that were happening that were kind of about politics that I just kind of got over. And and other things were happening at the same time. I found out that I had two autoimmune diseases that happened. Had two small kids at the time. Um, Now they're old, (laughs) but at the time they were little and that was really hard. And they were starting to be old enough to tell me like how I was impacting them and how me working so much was impacting them. So, so you were disappointing them as much. Yeah, saying. pretty much. Pretty <laughs> right, much. Right, right. What my son actually said to me oh. one day at six years old, he said to me, mommy, why do you worry all the time? And oh that was gosh. heartbreaking, right? Like yeah. I didn't think that that's who I was. So there's a whole series of things that happened that made me realize I need to change something. Decided that I wanted to start my own business. I was going to quit that job and then do a lot of the same things, but in a consulting capacity. I felt like it helped with flexibility yeah. and kind of more of a sense of ownership. So quit that job. Started my own business. My first customer was Henry Albrecht. Henry is the CEO of Limeade. And he just had an idea and he needed some help with it. And so we got together and started to really do the work that was around me going and looking at the literature and the research on this topic of well-being. And so from that, created our first model, created our first assessment. In fact, the assessment we still use today. My goodness, it's so fascinating that you found your partner in crime right away. What was it? Because so many people do have an idea or they meet someone and they partner up and it goes sour pretty quickly. So, or it doesn't, you know, it's fine, but then it goes off a cliff at some point. It has not gone off a cliff for you. (laughs) So what is it about your chemistry that makes you good co-founders? So I think the very first thing was our curiosity. I think both of us completely hit it off because we loved what we were talking about so much and we were just digging in and getting more and more excited about it. So I think curiosity was a big part. I also think we complement each other very well. Sometimes people tease us like a yin and yang kind of thing. He has like crazy marketing mindset. I have none of that. zero. (laughs) And so I have, you know, these other things that I care deeply about around these topics, right? It's a little bit more like functional expertise. So I think it was the combination of that great marketing head this this area of study, this functional area. So flash forward all these years, I mean, you are fixing work. So can you tell us some stories about how you're at least taking a swing at yes. it or trying? Because that's why you're here. Yes. You're really making an effort to fix work and not in a disingenuous way. 
Like I, I believe in it. We're buddies. We're friends. I love the firm, but I've seen it in action. So tell us some stories about that. We, you're right. We're all about fixing work. That's really what we're trying to do and really change the mindsets around how these big employers think about what they're supposed to be doing for their employees. At the heart of this whole thing is this concept of well-being. We think that quality of life is probably one of the most important things for us to be thinking about, right? Individually and also in organizations. We know through our research that when an employer cares authentically about people as human beings, great things happen. You get better business results. And so that's what we're trying to do with our customers is really help them see that authentically caring about their employees is better for their employees and it's better for their business. But what a difficult model because most people don't want to entertain the time, the energy, the effort, the budget to give a rip. Yeah. <laughs> don't I know. Don't. It's a lot of work. I know. I think you, you've hit upon a way to do it where it's not such a heavy lift That's right. anymore. I mean, we're using technology yes. to create an easy way for organizations to do that, right? And so that technology and the messages that get sent that we care about you as a human, we want you to really be excited about your work. We want you to feel included. We want you to feel connected. That's the feeling we want to have happen through our platform. And so there are so many of our customers who have really embrace this and they've really made it theirs and authentic to their culture and what they're trying to do. But the underlying concept is really caring about people. One of the things that I'm really trying to work on right now is how do you get people to move away from this feeling taboo? Mm. Right. Because I think this concept of caring. Yeah. There are a lot of people like you who sort of who they get like, I, I know what you're talking about. But there's also quite a few people who say, oh, come on. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Or it's too feminine. It's, or it's too soft. It's right? too soft. It's too yeah. feminine. Or even like, yeah, I care about you. I give you a paycheck every time. <laughs> That's how I care about you. Right. Um, Sounds like my grandparents. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is. I think there is a generational yeah. kind of way of thinking about this. But how can we break down that taboo? And the way we are approaching it is we're trying to break that taboo down. Down through science. Mm. I want people to see that it feels good. Absolutely. But let me show you what the science says yeah. about caring about people. And there's actually some really good academic science around the impact you can have when you care about people, the business impact that happens. And even what does that caring look like? Yeah. And so that's, that's really what we're trying to help our customers see is, yeah, feels good, but let, let us show you that it's better for your business through, through the science that we, that we have. Well, tell me about one of your customers, because I know you have great customer stories. And so I think people love what you're saying, right? I'm yeah. sure they believe in it in theory, but you've got some actual case studies to show that this is paying off and it's paying off big. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of them that I think is like the most complex one is the state of Washington. So one of our biggest customers is the employee or the employees of the state of Washington. And so you can imagine that there's all these different agencies or departments within the state of Washington, right? And wait, all different kinds of jobs. Yes. Well, right. All right. Department of wildlife, department of natural resources, oh, right? yeah. all these different yeah. groups. And it makes this whole thing really complicated. Mm-hmm. What's neat is the governor is sort of, you could think of sort of the Uber leader yes. and he is a great voice for this program. And so he says a lot of really positive things and encourages everybody to participate and to do the things that we would think of. But there's some interesting kind of ways we've tried to really personalize this to these different agencies and different agency needs. One of the stories that I have heard in this is the Department of Corrections. So think about trying to focus on the well-being of your employees when you head up the Department of Corrections. Oh my God, I wouldn't want that job for a 
million dollars. I mean, that's challenging, but we need it in our society, right? Our society has said we need these jobs and we need these people to function at a high level and be healthy, right? Completely. And so, and it's really dangerous. It's dangerous right? I'm sure emotionally draining, probably really easy to get jaded, you know, Mm -hmm. be defensive about like not even wanting to engage. Um, So the secretary of the Department of Corrections was trying to get people to participate. And so he said if people reached a certain level of completion around the assessment, the well-being assessment, that he'd do an eight-hour shift on the floor. And that was really motivating for them, for him to come and see and experience what their job really is. So instead of giving people a gift card or something like that, a $5 gift card, let me come and be with you yes. and really feel what your job is like. Yeah. And I just thought that was such a great little example of something positive that happened. And the way that it got reinforced was a deeper understanding. Yeah. So take me through what this platform and what this assessment does for someone at the Department of Corrections, because you've got an assessment that you begin with, right? That's yep. the experience. And then through your platform, you collect a lot of data. What what happens with that? What do yeah. employers use it for? Oh, so many different reasons, uh, so many different purposes. So what happens is we have actually lots of different ways that we collect data. One of them is this well-being assessment that a person would take this and really understand more about this concept of whole person well-being, yeah. which is really this feeling good and living with purpose. And it's got a lot of components around things like optimism and gratitude, but also physical, Mm -hmm. your physical health, your financial well-being, what it's like to be at work, your emotional well-being. All those things are measured. And so then we come back to you and say, look at all your strengths, look at what you're doing really well. And then here are some things that you might think of to improve. And so then we send out activities and different kind of nudges to get people to try some new things. So we do gather a lot of data through that, right? And you can think about large populations like the state of Washington it's fascinating what we can see and learn. And so we've also done some, from that data, we've done some research studies to show how important all of these things are, that how well-being is really related to some of the kind of people results they care about and some of their business results. So we can do that kind of analysis, but we also have dashboards that we look at where we can look at turnover. Mm -hmm. We can look at levels of engagement. And we're not talking about just participation. We're talking about the engagement of that deep connection and sense of purpose you can have it work. So we have ways to measure all that. We also have a burnout measure. Now, burnout is something that I think is such an interesting topic. And there's so much that I think organizations are not paying attention to when it comes to burnout. Hey, everybody, it's no secret that I love and believe in the future of human resources. More importantly, I believe in you. One way you can change the game for HR and for yourself is to focus on your continuing education. Ultimate Software sponsors free workshops around the country where HR leaders, recruiters, payroll professionals, and even consultants can earn free SHRM, HRCI, and APA credits. I've been to these Ultimate Software workshops. They're highly interactive, fun, and you'll learn a ton about the future of work and the world of HR. Visit ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW to learn more and to sign up for a workshop near you. That's ultimatesoftware forward slash LFW to find a workshop and earn recertification credits and stay on top of your game. That's ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW. And maybe I'll see you at a city near you. 
when you pay attention to burnout, then you have to be accountable for the attributes <laughs> exactly. that cause burnout. Exactly. So talk a little bit about the science of burnout oh. because it, I'm sure it's just overwork or overburden, but also people bring their own stuff to work, right? And that kind of exacerbates the situation of work and you can burn out just from life circumstances. Yes, completely. Yeah. I, so this topic is fascinating to me. I think actually when I was telling you the story about where I was before yeah. and how this whole thing started, I actually think I burned out. Yeah, yeah I think it sounds that's like what, it. what had happened. Yeah. Um, and so what the idea of burnout, I think is fascinating because it starts with this idea of caring so deeply that you're really sacrificing everything. People who don't care about their jobs don't burn out, right? <laughs> you have to, it sort of starts with this idea you have to be on fire in order to burn out. Yeah. And so you start with these high levels of engagement, but somewhere along the way, you're not taking care of yourself or the organization doesn't show some support and try to take care of you, right? So it's high levels of engagement that intersect with high levels of stress, really, yeah. and, no, and low well-being. So what's fascinating about burnout is that there are these natural stages that happen and yet they're very, very, fairly predictable. So the first stage is this idea of just being completely exhausted, depleted. It's not a like get a good night's sleep kind of exhaustion. It's like, even if you do that, it's not better. The second stage is becoming cynical. So it's very natural for somebody who's burned out to be sort of thought of as toxic, hard to be around because that's how they sort of emotionally detach from work and from that depletion. And the next stage is this concept of inefficacy. Like I don't make a difference. Why do I try? So those stages, I think are one of the main reasons why organizations dismiss burnout or don't own up to their role in burnout because it's sort of like, oh, people were like mm, negative and yeah. toxic. But those are the natural stages of burnout. It's right. like that's what you go through. And I had no idea that burnout correlated to people who were highly engaged at the beginning yes. and loved their jobs yes. so much. I think we automatically categorize individuals who are burned out as cynical. We go to step two without yes. thinking about step Where one. it all started. Like yeah. the, only, the way this all starts is that you have to care so much yeah. to give your all. And, and those are the best people, right? We, we lose the most committed people, people who were willing to do that. Or are they the most committed? Are they the best? Or are they just the weirdest? Because they don't have enough going on in other aspects of their lives. Like, how do you prevent burnout? Because I think if you love your job so much, that also comes with pros and cons, right? hundred percent. Yeah. We sort of have this going on in life. We have extremely high levels of engagement. But we're, I'm really worried about our levels of burnout, right? Because we have so many people who are so invested in what we're doing, care so much. So I think the trick is, how do you make sure there's well-being in the picture, right? Yeah. That they're taking care of themselves, that you're supporting them, that you're encouraging them to take care of themselves. You know, and the crazy thing about burnout is it also tends to go hand in hand with things like alcohol abuse, mm. you know, divorce. And so that's really complicated. You were talking about people bringing their own baggage and their stuff, right? That's another reason why burnout is such a difficult topic for organizations to get their hands around because it's always complicated. Yeah, it's messy. It's messy. But we know that burnout is a huge problem. And, and like, talk to any tech company that's around here, they'll tell you burnout is a big problem. And if you look at the academic research on this, the causes of burnout are organizational. There's some really great research around the role of the manager, not feeling like you have support, feedback, breakdown in trust. All those things are the reasons why people actually burn out. And very few organizations kind of own up to their role in it. No, they want to ignore it or they want to go and you're right, blame the alcoholism or yes. blame the divorce, right? And that's just a symptom. It is just, that's fascinating to me. Well, you know, you talked about data that's being collected in this process and I'm fascinated by this because we in the workforce, we may not realize it. I'm going to use a word you may disagree with, but I'm going to use it. We're surveilled all day long. We are just watched, yeah. whether it's through our internet usage or through the internet of things, knowing where we are in the office or whatever. I mean, or 
organizations know a lot more about us than we even know they know. Mm -hmm. And there's just so much data being collected. What's the responsibility for tech companies to start talking about this? And what's the responsibility to let employees know what's going on and how they're being watched and what's being done with their data? Yeah, I think there there just has to be so much transparency around this and have people even even know what's being gathered. I also have sort of a different take around, I don't know how much a lot of this stuff tells us, honestly. Like when you, to know how much I'm on my computer or on the internet, like I care a lot more about what's happening in here and (laughs) how people feel about things. Yes. And that, I worry that sometimes we think that all this other data is going to really be a proxy for what people really feel about work and that we're going to stop asking people. Mm -hmm. And I really don't want to get to the point where we're not asking people. I think that's what we should be leading with. So a lot of times we have people who are data scientists who work here who are like, they want to gather all this extra stuff. And I, and I'm trying not to be that old stodgy. (laughs) No. Um, But I really do think asking people directly Mm -hmm. is the best approach. But on top of that, Let's be honest with people what we're gathering, right? Well, so true. And I read about all these trends around badges and where you are in the office and, you know, communicating information that way and who you're interacting with. I mean, badges can talk to one another now at certain companies. It's really fascinating. And I think you're right. Transparency is the key, but it's the key for all of this. Like why we're doing what we're doing is a conversation we don't have enough of with employees. So why are we asking them to participate in a well-being program? Why do we want this? A lot of times we're not honest about it. I know. And we do crazy stuff. I see this happen all the time. If you participate, we'll give you a gift card. But the whole point of this thing is we care about you as a person. We want you to have a great life. That's why we want you to participate. And we sort of forget to tell people that, or (laughs) you know, that we're not authentic with that yet actually being true. So to me, the whole point of well-being and wellness programs, it really gets missed. And we forget to talk about the why. So you have some clients who do talk about the why or are doing well-being really, really well. And I know you've mentioned Black & Decker as an example of a client that you're really proud of. So can you tell us that story? Sure. So what I think is really cool about what they do is their leader, their CEO, cares deeply about the concept of purpose. Yeah. And really seeing that there's so much power when people feel a sense of purpose. And so they've done so many cool things through our program, but in other ways too, to connect individual employees to their own personal purpose. So when I, when I see leaders who get this kind of bigger thing, this higher order construct and are trying to do something real about it, that to me is what it's all about, right? Yeah. Like, this idea of quality of life and how really helping and encouraging your employees to have that, right? It's just so meaningful. I think there are so many individual contributors or leaders or directors who believe in this concept of well-being, but it stops there and it's not up at the top. And we have this trope that oh, leadership, everything that you need to do needs to start at the top. What if you're kind of in that middle? Yeah. How do you effectively bring forth the values of well-being, of wellness, of caring, of giving a damn, even if your leaders aren't bought in? There's this model we use that's called organizational support. And it's based on academic literature that's got a lot of really good research behind it. So we use that as a simple way of talking about the things that need to happen for employees to feel like this is real. And so what I would say is managers can play the biggest role. In fact, in the research that we did, 
we did some interesting work called relative weights analysis, where we put all eight components of this organizational support model into a statistical model to see which ones were the strongest predictors. And probably no surprise, managers came out as the strongest predictor of feeling supported for your well-being. Yeah. So what I encourage people to do on the most simple level is what if managers actually said, how are you doing? <laughs> well, <laughs> what and they listened <laughs> and listened right. and acted on that yeah. but authentically like yeah. cared about right. how this person is doing what, what if in our one-on-ones it wasn't just status reports mm-hmm. and you know, tell me how, what's going on with that project and it was started with yeah. how are you doing what's going on with you how can I help right that to me is the most basic fundamental way that this can all come to life I've heard you tell stories around the power of gratitude, the power of recognition, mm-hmm. how you see this playing out here at Limeade and within your clients as well, and we're getting it right. What is the power of gratitude and recognition? Because those are buzzwords right now, right? They're I mean, everybody's supposed to go around and have a gratitude practice and be grateful six times a day. And <laughs> it's like a lot of work. It's just a lot of work to show up to work some days, <laughs> let alone to be grateful. Right. But yet gratitude correlates with high function in companies. And so does recognition. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. This is, those um, topics are from, a, again, more science perspective. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of great research to say the more gratitude you have in your life, yeah. the higher levels of well-being you have, right? This kind of overall quality of life is enhanced by being grateful. And so there is good academic research. And I think those of us who, who've tried to practice it have also seen that it can be really life-changing. That if you take the time to take a step back, and realize all the things that are amazing in your life, it just sets your, it puts your head in a different space. Well, it surely feels good to feel good. <laughs> it, does. it does. It does feel yeah. good to feel good. Funny, yes. Yeah. Um, and it also feels really good to, when other people feel good because they, you said thank you, yes. right? And so being grateful, recognizing other people's contributions is good for that person, obviously, but it, it there's research to say it makes you feel better, right? When you do something like that. So not only from a research perspective is it great, I just know in my own life when I have done that, and I try to do that regularly, I have funny times where I do it. It's like a lot of times when I'm driving, mm-hmm. in a, when I have a long commute, that's probably, I'm driving a lot, so <laughs> that's why. So I'm driving, and a good song will come on, and the sun will come out, and I'll just have these moments where it's like, I am so grateful for the life that I have. I've got so many wonderful things. And then when I when I do that, I realize I come into work with a whole yeah. Kind of different mindset. You know, it's it's not just feeling good in that moment. It's I, the way that that kind of makes me be <laughs> is a much more positive and maybe approachable person. Does it do gratitude and recognition a disservice when we create a formal program around it? Because a lot of times that's what we want to do, right? We want to take a good idea and make it into a program. Yeah. You know, I think... I sort of have a pet peeve around programs in general, right? Is that we think that that will solve all our problems if we just had a program for it, right? There's, a, I think, a way to do it where it makes it easy. It makes it kind of a structure, right? And so I can appreciate a good process or structure yeah. to kind of make things happen. But when it becomes sort of that thing over there and it doesn't feel authentic and it doesn't feel like there's a human element to it, I think that's when they fail. And so what we always try to do, in fact, we just did this this morning. We have a new kind of approach to how we think about, we call it, we're a team. It's aligned to our values. And so what I think is so important is to have have a human being present it and say why, you know, talk about the why and make it feel human yeah, and not just about the 
the little thing that we use to represent it, right? Or Some to make people. it compliant, right? I mean, yeah. so much of this is compliance. The gratitude is not compliance-driven. So <laughs> you actually get an opportunity if you're thinking about instituting formal gratitude practices or recognition or conversations to do it in a different way yeah. because it's not mandated by the federal government <laughs> that you are grateful. And yeah. that's just crazy, right? If you have to do it or if there's a certain number you have to re-enter, yes. that's yeah. insane, right? Because, yeah. of course, you know what happens, right? People just do it because they're supposed to do it. The compliance exactly right. The whole intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation of a lot of things that we do in human resources, there's a lot of opportunity to make it better. You know, we tend to think that extrinsic is the way to go. And we know from this, a science perspective, it's all about intrinsic to really get people to do things that are sustainable, that keep happening over time. Well, you function and deal with some of the highest levels of HR. Like you deal with great HR leaders. What are you optimistic about when it comes to the future of work? There must be something about HR and the future of work. I mean, you're a fan anyway, but there must be something that really resonates with you. Like when you think about the goodness of HR, the goodness of work in the future, what do you think of? I am so thrilled to see the evolution of this idea of caring about people. When we first started and we were creating this company, people laughed at us and told us we were crazy, right? And what I love now is that organizations come to us and they get it and they want to do it and they want to be authentic about it. That gives me so much hope, right? To see that kind of evolution. Now, of course, it's not every organization and there's a lot of organizations that aren't good fits for us, but there are a lot more. And these are big companies, like company brand names you recognize who have an authentic commitment to caring about their employees. In fact, even saying the word love, you know, and it's crazy. So I think that the evolution and that, that kind of connection to me, to the stuff that's meaningful, the substance, right? That is very hopeful to me. I love that. As we wrap up today's conversation, you've just told us so much about what to be optimistic about with the future of work. What should we be looking for from Limeade? I know you're leaders in the industry. What's new? What's next? And what do you want to leave us with? Yeah. So what I'd love to leave you with is what if we thought about all these things we do in human resources from the perspective of the employee? So instead of thinking about we have these benefits and we have learning and development and we have a recognition program. What if we really took all this on, on its side and said, how do we show our employees that we care about them? And how do we create an amazing employee experience and really get rid of these HR silos? <laughs> what a concept, right? I think it's going to take really progressive HR leaders and CEOs to get us to that point because it's a lot of work to break down those walls. But I think that the employee, thinking about kind of leading with the employee is going to be where the future is going. Oh, I love that. That's lovely. Well, Dr. Laura Hamill, it's been just a joy to spend the day with you. We've had a couple of hours together. It's been really fun. If people want to find you on the internet, connect with you, learn more about you and your journey or Limeade, where can they go? Yeah. So they can go to Limeade.com. They also can go to Laura at Limeade.com. I'm happy to interact and talk with people. That would be really fun. And I just appreciate you so much, Lori. That was really fun and uh, great talking with you. Yeah, it's been just a fantastic day. I do have to ask, are you on LinkedIn? Oh, sorry. 
Yes, I am on LinkedIn. Do you accept people's I invitations? Do. I oh, very much do. I love you. that. No, that was really welcome. good. I, you know, some people are LinkedIn averse. Like they're like, I have rules and I don't do LinkedIn or I only do LinkedIn with people I know. What's the point of LinkedIn if you already know them? <laughs> good, point. good point. Thank you for that reminder. You're welcome. So they can connect with you on LinkedIn Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, it's been a joy to see you today. Thanks again for the awesome opportunity to hang out in Bellevue, Washington. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lori. Yeah. It's awesome. Everybody, we'll be right back with more Let's All executives need to be podcasting. Podcasts are the number one way for executives to create an authentic and trusting relationship with employees and potential customers. That's why my producer, Danny Osmond, just did a three-part series on why executives should be podcasting. Want to give your company a brand or a face? Want to connect with current or future employees? Are you interested in pivoting out of your current position and into a new career or personal brand? Well, if you're an executive who is podcast curious, head on over to dannyosmond.com forward slash executives and learn how a podcast builds credibility, how podcasting gives you a leg up against the competition, and how a podcast can power a speaking career and help you write a book. Don't worry about finding the time to listen. Each episode is less than 10 minutes and Danny has put all three episodes in one place. Head on over to dannyosmond.com forward slash executives to listen and find more resources. That's dannyosmond.com forward slash executives. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Laura Hamill of LimeAid. To learn more about wellness, well-being, and the employee experience, Have a look at our show notes and feel free to visit LimeAid or connect with Dr. Laura Hamill online at LinkedIn. Let's Fix Work was recorded live in Bellevue, Washington and produced by Danny Osmond at Emerald City Productions. I'm always grateful for his support. Feel free to visit Emerald City Productions and learn how you can start podcasting. Additionally, I want to give a final shout out to Ultimate Software. They've been a phenomenal sponsor for the past three months. Just a great partnership. And so please visit ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW to learn more about improving your HR department, learning and growing as a leader, and really rethinking what it means to fix work. Now that's all for today. And I really hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next week on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.